five, four, three, two, one. Lift off of the Falcon 9. In this week's Space Economy podcast, my special guest is Lori Garver, the former Deputy Administrator of NASA and author of the new book, Escaping Gravity, My Quest to Transform NASA and Launch a New Space Age. During her 35-year career, and this is just a partial list, Lori worked at NASA twice, advised a variety of presidential candidates, led the NASA transition team under Barack Obama, was the Executive Director of the National Space Society for nine years, and co-founded the Brooke Owens Fellowship, an internship and mentorship program for collegiate women. Oh, and she's also a space pirate, and that's a good thing. Listen in. Hi, Lori. Welcome to the Space Economy Podcast. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here. Okay, so I'm going to dive right into this. Affordable and reliable access to space is central to humanity's use of space, whether for space exploration or for Earth observation. Um, my words. Achieving that goal has been difficult from a technological perspective and from a political perspective. Your book chronicles your experiences, including at NASA, as you strive to change the system that favored the establishment, regardless of the cost. The pioneers who attempted to lower the cost of access to space are referred to as space pirates. So let's start there. What? And who are the space pirates? Well, um, first of all, my takeaway is that the politics, as you say, has been what's held us back. And the point of the book is to um, shed some light on that so it doesn't have to in the future. Space pirates have been people I have known throughout my 35-year career who taught me uh, basically uh, how, why it is we haven't had the space program and the space development that lots of us thought we would have in the beginning. Um, these were people well before Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos. I'm speaking of Jim Muncy and Rick Tomlinson and Charles Miller and people who were in the L5 Society. And when I worked at the National Space Institute and we merged, I met them in the mid 80s. They were already um, deeply um, seated in their views about how the private sector needed to help develop space in ways that could be more sustainable. And I frankly just learned it from them. It made so much sense. It's obviously just logical and correct with the ideologies that we have in this country. And I was thrilled to be able to play a role. I, I had a career that was unique going in and out of government a couple of times at senior posts where I could advance those policies. Okay, so I'm gonna pivot just a little bit because from my perspective, I think it's important. Um, and I'll just dive into it and I'll frame it. So although it's only mentioned once in the book, economy, which you studied as part of your master's degree at uh, George uh, GWU, uh, it's a topic uh, I'm kind of curious about. How did your education at GWU influence your thinking on space policy and space economics? Sure. Well, my undergraduate degree was also in political economy. 
Um, and my father was a stockbroker at Merrill Lynch. And these, this was very influential to me because not only did I have political science, my background with my grandfather and uncle being in the state legislature uh, as Republicans, I might add, they, um, the, the real value I think that the space economy can bring to the United States is one of the reasons we have a space program. If you go back to the 1958 Space Act, developing the environment of the atmosphere and space and vehicles that can traverse in those environments is all about adding to the welfare and benefits of the United States citizens. And economic benefits are some of the biggest um, benefits that we get. And more importantly, probably you can't keep doing this if you're not having um, an impact in a positive way on the economy. You then just become a drag uh, on the economy with government spending if it's not opening up new markets and um, advancing into areas where the government isn't the only customer. So it wasn't just GW or my undergraduate that really talked about this. And again, I'm not the only one by any stretch. I'll shock people and say, you know, I think Mike Griffin for the first time said the phrase expanding our economic sphere. Maybe he wasn't first, but I quote him on it because I've heard him say it. And I think that is very meaningful. You know, we had different ways about how we thought that should be done, but it's it's an absolutely essential aspect to space development. So after you got your master's, you worked as the executive director of the National Space Society for nine years. And I think I was a member at that point. Uh, and then you worked uh, at the NASA, NASA in the Office of Policy and Plans for three years. As someone who was a space pirate, what was the experience like working in the, in the NASA Office of Policy and Plans after coming from the National Space Society? Well, I went to NASA directly from the National Space Society to work for Dan Golden. And I think, I don't even know, my title was strategic advisor or something. He, I was working in the administrator's office in his suite. And as I depict in the book, I did get a lot of pushback from then some another group of people I call um, the cup boys. And these were just primarily people who had a traditional view about how, how our space program should, should be. And Dan Golden had indeed brought me in to sort of, I think, bring a different perspective. After my first year, uh, Alan Ladwig, the Associate Administrator for Policy and Plans, offered me a position in his office to lead commercial space policy. And he was really saving me because I think the cup boys were not at all prepared to keep me in the administrator suite. So close with Dan Golden, he saw me as stirring up way too much trouble. So I went and worked for Alan, which was wonderful. And then uh, he switched and Dan asked him to come to the A-suite as an advisor. And I was promoted into the associate administrator for policy. So by then, actually, I think the main antagonists of mine at NASA, namely the deputy and chief of staff, Minnie and Zorro in Cupboy nomenclature, had moved along and working for Dan Golden as head of policy at NASA was wonderful. Uh, he asked me to lead commercial space efforts. We had a great team 
I work closely with the general counsel and astronauts, all driving toward both, I think, assuring that the follow-on to the space shuttle was done in a way that utilized the private sector and that the space station could be better utilized both for scientific experiments and for commercial um, development. So those were those were great years. The first year was a challenge, but when the head of NASA has a vision like Dan Golden did and was willing to really lean in, that um, was that that made all the difference. Now, you were already facing battles at that point, and you 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 were there for three years. Did you leave because the battles were were, were becoming too difficult, or was there other opportunities? Ah, uh, neither. I, I was at NASA a total of five years on that run, that first tour, three, I guess, at the end as AA for policy. But because the head of the policy office is one of just the handful, I think 18 to 20 right now, political appointees at NASA, I had to become, I wasn't brought into NASA as a political appointee, but I had to become one to lead the policy office. That meant that when um, Bill Clinton was no longer the president as of January 20th at noon. I was no longer working at NASA. Um, that, that was just a given. Right. Sorry. I didn't realize that you were a political appointee at that point. Um, all right. So you left NASA. You spent some time uh, doing various ventures uh, and companies. Uh, and then uh, and we'll get to the Astromom later. Um, before returning to NASA in, in 2009. Uh, this time when you came back, you were, you were deputy administrator, uh, number two at the, at, at number two position at NASA. Now this was preceded by being a space policy advisor to Hillary Clinton, others leading the transition team for President-elect Obama. Uh, and as part of the transition team, you had advised President Obama that your recommendation as a nominee for NASA administrator uh, was going to, you were suggesting Steve, uh, as a coward, right? Um, that, didn't, yeah. that didn't happen. Uh, instead, uh, Major uh, General Charles, Charlie Bolden, was selected at the behest of Senator Nelson, um, who plays a central figure in your book. Um, not always in a very good light. Uh, how would you describe Senator Nelson and his efforts to shape the space program up to that point? Yeah, I'm glad to have this opportunity. Uh, you know, I had known initially Congressman Nelson. I had testified when I was executive director of the National Space Society before their committee. Of course, we all just were in lockstep about the value of NASA and how their budget should increase. And so there was no daylight at all. And when I came in to serve as a transition team, I, I really was supposed to be that was supposed to be private you know if the president doesn't win and you're working on the transition team people never know that you did it um you know i've had that experience as, as well and so um i didn't have a lot of interaction with him until people started putting forward namely the incoming white house personnel team um candidates for the administrator position as as I, I think what's important about Senator Nelson is for more than anyone else I think on the hill 
for many years, he got up and thought about NASA and was willing to pick up the phone and make calls about it. And that is how he got things done. So I don't want this to all be negative. If he had been fighting for the things that I thought were the right direction for NASA, he would have been, you know, top of my list. It's only because I think he he did have some views initially that were seated in in the past and because his advocacy for a NASA administrator was something the Obama incoming administration decided they would um, ultimately let him let him get who he wanted that it, it just became a little difficult but honestly Senator Nelson is the person who put my name forward uh, for the final vote in the Senate along with Charlie's and even on the day our budget came out that became so controversial I talked to him and I did initially think that he was understanding and on board. I was very surprised that he had not been keeping up with this with the administrator because Charlie had said he wanted to take the lead on congressional relationships with key people, the head of our committees. And we had legislative affairs doing that with him. And so all of a sudden, like, well, he didn't even know what we were thinking, which was challenging. You're being really nice. Um, in your book, your characterization of Charlie Bowden leaves me with the impression, this is just my impression, that he wasn't a good leader as NASA administrator. He wasn't fully there paying attention to some of the things that were ongoing with, with respect to policy and what the, what the uh, Obama ad administration had said, this is what we want. Am I reading that right or wrong? You know, Mark, similar to Bill Nelson, I'm not trying to be nice or mean. This is a, um, I, I try to as much as possible lay out, you know, quotes, things, things they publicly said. And for me, Charlie, as a leader in the Marines, I mean, he, he's got a lot of leadership skills and there in many ways are, are so many things that he does and, and I learned from him. The issue was, I don't believe he thought NASA, he, he didn't have an agenda for NASA, but I don't think he even felt we should have one. I think he fundamentally, when he started, and I, he sort of admitted this in some interviews, um, wasn't really prepared for the job. He didn't, you know, this is the thing we do. We think engineers should be head, head of um, NASA. You don't do engineering there, you know, the basic, um, laws of how we do politics and the branches of government and who we report to that that those are basic things that um when you have shortcomings are are hard hard to hard to deal with and i very quickly i think became a flashpoint not just for him but for those around him like wait she's your deputy why is she disagreeing with you in a meeting why is she bringing things up um that we're waiting to hear from you at first i don't i i think he's just an easygoing person and oh okay I'll, I'll i'll listen but that became a little toxic over time and yeah as a leader of nasa at that time i felt we needed somebody who was really 
um, articulating the vision that the administration put forward. Charlie did not do that for a lot of reasons, partially at least because he did not understand it, believe in it, support it. I'm not sure which combination of those still to this day. What he says today is, I wasn't a fan of commercial space. Okay, but the administration wanted to do it. And so we should have had that discussion. Yeah, so, and like I said, I was just referring to, just so that everybody understands, just referring to his time at NASA, not his, his great record uh, exactly. before that. And, um, and of course, he didn't really like Washington, which makes me wonder why he took the job in the first place. Um, but I mean, if somebody asks you, he says, to, he, says he didn't want it. He says he didn't want it. There were a couple of stories that didn't make it in the book. When I was on transition team at one point, they said, well, Sue Nelson wants, just call him and even see if he wants it. And when I did that, I think he was a little put off someone so junior, even though I was leading the transition team calling him. And he said, well, if I was going to do it, I'd have to talk to the president. And I was like, well, I'm not offering it to you. Obviously, you would talk to the president before he would make that decision. Um, I've never understood, was this more Bill Nelson trying to get him to do it? Or did he want it? It's very hard to marry his direct quotes about hating Washington with why did he pursue taking the job and then stay in it for eight years. Now, it's 2022, and I have some more questions that relate to, or at least one more question about Senator Nelson, but it's 2022, and how do you see NASA, as you know, from the time that you've left to now, has the establishment changed a little bit, or is it still basically the same, but they just couldn't stop the momentum of commercial. I'm not there. And having been there and had people uh, not there, you know, making guesses about what was really going on was challenging. So I'm reluctant to do that too much. I have friends who are there who say a lot has changed. And obviously that wouldn't have happened without these programs having some success. But on the flip side, unfortunately, it's also because the same old cost plus contracts we tried to cancel have been so bogged down um, that just, you know, the, the contrast is, is shocking and almost no one is missing that. I have been wondering how this will ultimately play out because Senator Nelson is now just so obviously supporting commercial space, saying that these cost plus contracts are a plague, which, which I'm not even sure I would go that far because I think there is a place for them. Um, I was, as I say in the book, a fan of what Jim Bridenstine was trying to do, but I also know he wasn't able to get much of what he wanted to take hold. So we had commercial crew already and he carried it out and I'm really grateful for that. Um, he, I heard, wanted to cancel SLS, but he wasn't able to get that done. You didn't really ever even hear him talk about that. Um, I guess, I don't know if it's true, Senator Shelby pushed back when when he tried and then maybe Trump wasn't gonna stand up to Shelby. I, I sort of find that hard to believe. Um, much of this really is having the political fortitude to just defend good decisions when people who are in intractable positions won't change and 
when you have the high ground and you are really advocating for something that's going to help the nation, that's a big message in my book is, you know, push, push on that. Um, lean in, <laughs> swim to the wall, run through the tape, you know, that's, that's what it takes. And it's, we have, we still haven't quite done it yet, except in these couple of areas. And I think the changes at NASA are coming, but my crystal ball is cloudy as to when that will really take hold. So the reason why I brought up the space, political economy and space policy and economics comes to this question. It's 2022. We still have the space launch system. And in your book, you know, and, and you said at the beginning of the podcast, you know, space economics is important. It, 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 you know, we're creating an economy that's creating jobs and there's now innovation in, in many new areas. But at the same time, we still have the space launch system. We're still spending billions of dollars on it. Isn't that, my words, wasteful spending just going to keep on going? Yeah, I, I think I make it pretty clear in the book. I did everything I could think of um, within my power and my position to have us not have an SLS like we do now. Um, immediately as that was happening, I, I literally felt sick not being able to keep this from happening because it was so obvious it was going to be a direction that we would be in for a long time, that thousands of people would spend their lives working on it. I know my words are very hurtful to those people. And I want to keep saying over and over, the people working on the program, you know, are not to blame. This was not set up to succeed. This was set up for political purposes to extend contracts and jobs. Extending jobs in itself, this is what's hard for people that just, you know, a Oh, good paying jobs. Okay, well, would we really want our tax dollars just doing that for all of us? What what would that look for like for the economy? Um, in Apollo and the early days of the space program, jobs helped develop technology. We were doing new things. We were building new centers. We, you know, that's not the case now. So, except for programs where we're still innovating. So, putting together parts of old programs like the shuttle and constellation to do a launch was never going to uh, lower costs it was never going to be reliable it's never going to be sustainable all the things that we said we needed all the things that we say artemis is uh it, it's just not possible and the ig says it'll be four billion a year oh and nasa's pushback is it's not going to be that much okay two billion still <laughs> and and Almost more importantly, the fact that we can only launch one every one or two years. In, in Apollo, Saturn V, I think, launched 12 times in five years. Uh, we can do maybe three. Um, how, how is that we're going back to the moon this time to stay? And and people are acting like this is news this year. It's not. This, is, this has just been coming for a decade. Very frustrating, yes. Yes, it will continue to frustrate, I'm sure. Um, and I should say, let's think of the opportunity cost because it, because it isn't just not doing that. You know, it's what we could have done right. with that budget, right? What you could have done with that budget. I, absolutely. Um, now, all right, so last question on Senator Nelson. 
Um, Senator Nelson, as you said, became NASA administrator. Was that a shock when, when you found out? It was pretty shocking, honestly. I, it was not on my radar. I was, you know, uh, supporting a number of women at the time who I thought would be fantastic and just sort of assume that's what President Biden would do. Um, as far as the book goes, I was very, very well into it. And so was a little concerned, like, oh, because I knew, you know, how he had played into the history of the story. I also knew as soon as he got nominated, he would be confirmed easily. And Scientific America asked right away, probably based on a tweet of mine, whether I would like to explain my concerns in an op-ed, which I did, which wasn't aimed at getting him not to be put in the position, but to say, hey, to the Biden administration, um, maybe this isn't, this is a signal that you're not thinking of the programs that are really the most productive and successful and to put it on their radar screen that, yeah, he's going to be your NASA administrator, but let's make sure these other programs are, are front and center. Um, and then also to raise the concern about a lack of diversity, uh, gender diversity, certainly in the, in the top spot at NASA. Um, having been number two, I, I know what a female deputy administrator is um, going through. She's fantastic, but there's a very big difference between being administrator and being deputy administrator. So yeah, it was it was really surprising. I, I don't know why I hadn't thought, oh, wow, he'll pick his old friend, you know, and literally just it went against, I think, what what he said he president biden was was doing for most of the rest of the cabinet yeah and the motivations are the motivations and they're all political um i don't okay. know so in this case i think it's pretty personal i think we have seen president biden be very um comfortable with people who he knows even with you know all all his appointments he he was less interested in maybe you know taking what he might have considered a risk and i and i'm sure senator nelson made it very easy to select him with daily calls <laughs> I, mean, I don't know that i don't know that but like i said he's very motivated and that can be hard to um overcome for others in washington who like to do things in a way that um is collegial just telling someone, no, stop calling me. No, at least in Obama, they weren't willing to do it, which I, I found shocking. So I'm going to skip the question because you already brought this up. Uh, diversity is an issue you brought up in the book. Uh, in recent years, do you think NASA is making enough progress on diversity and inclusion? Not, not enough, but some. No. I every, every time I would get to speak on the topic, I... I tried to put this as delicately as possible, you know, NASA did not start with a great record. I know we like to say that was a sign of the times, but, you know, NASA is a futuristic agency. If anyone in the government were, could, could imagine a time when we could have uh, equity and equality, we, we would have been the agency to do that. It took us too long. When we did it, we did it slow. I think we're still doing it slow. Um, and I, but I'm hard probably 
to satisfy on this. We've had um, certainly improvements. I love seeing the new center directors. We have some great female leaders and with the Brooke Owens Fellowship that I helped co-found, the, the pipeline is alive and well. Same with Patty Grace uh, Smith Fellowship. And I'm really optimistic, but you know, we still this we've still got a ways to go. As I say in the book, the brush is not yet cleared. And I'll say that in Canada, we have our first um, female president of the Canadian Space Agency. Indeed. Um, now, uh, okay, so yeah, so I, I totally skipped the part in the book about the Astro Mom because I wanted to focus on the other things first. So just just. Give us a little background on the Astromom and how that came to be and, 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 and how it got derailed. Yeah, this is a chapter of my life and it doesn't even make a whole chapter in the book. That's, that's how, um, I, I, it's not insignificant, but you know, do you ever do those things in life? You just you don't think about it. It was really far out there, unique opportunity because I was working when I left NASA the first time for a consulting firm, they are now called the Avacent Group. At the time, they were called DFI International, just a fabulous company. And I was affiliated with them for my entire eight years between my two NASA stints. They let me have clients through them that I helped, mostly the traditional, all, all the big name clients. And I also had separate direct clients. And this was from one of those. And his name was Fisk Johnson. Fisk Johnson is now the CEO of Johnson Wax. He was paying to go for a flight on the Soyuz right at the beginning. So Dennis Tito had just flown when we were doing this. So we went over to Russia and negotiating through Mircorp and Jeff Mamber and got a really good deal. And Fisk started his medical certification, got through it pretty quickly. We were humming along with that project when 9-11 happened. And Fisk, who, although he wasn't CEO of SC Johnson Wax, he had a lot of professional responsibilities, could not take the time to train that was required for the flight that was gonna be in the fall of 2002. I quickly regrouped because I knew the Russians needed this Western currency to keep the Soyuz production line going, to uh, keep these workers employed and fat, families fed and so forth. They, and they didn't have a lot of time to sell the seat. Jeff Mamber asked if I knew of others who might be interested in going. I give more detail about this in the book. Ultimately decided I could try myself to be a sponsored candidate. Got an agreement with the Russians that was very good. My ultimate agreement was for $12 million. That was a 10-day flight to the station. And I started my medical certification and training. I got sponsors. And as I was there, Lance Bass from NSYNC, it was announced, would be going on the same flight that, that I was working toward. The Russians hadn't heard anything about that yet. And it's a long story about how that happened, but we did end up spending some time in Russia together doing some of these um, medical certifications. And there's some fun stories about it in the book. No hard feelings. I do think I probably would have been able to go if, if that hadn't happened. 
And it's unfortunate because Lance wasn't able to go either. And I did support him going once he was there. And it seemed to me he was going to raise more money than me. And by the way, the Russians, you know, the price went up to 20 million when they saw him there because they assumed he could pay for it. Um, that all unraveled over time, but he spent a lot more time over there than I did. And ultimately, I think the Belgian astronaut Frank DeWin took the seat. And I was told at the time it was only around $3 million that ESA was paying the Russians for those seats. So again, this is why I felt I could beat that. Um, I could get the Russians more money and then they could get otherwise. And knowing the Russians, I was pretty sure they'd take it. And I will add, since you didn't mention it, that you did pass your training. I did. Well, again, so so be clear, that's medical certification. That's medical certification, but there was some- Not the full training. The book, it goes into detail on some of the tests and, and how you, you managed to get through them, but still, you did that. Oh, yeah. And, and that's one of the reasons that it's no hard feelings. I mean, it was a unique experience. My consulting firm supported me. My family supported me. I, I, got, I got to really test my medal and um, got a part of a chapter of good stories in it. Now, today, 2022, you can go to space, albeit not to the space station as cheap as 12 million or 3 million. It'd be a little bit more than that. But you can go on a Blue Origin flight or a Virgin Galactic flight, hopefully again in the near future. Have you considered uh, taking one of those flights? Are you booked? Of, of course I've considered it. I'm not a wealthy person. I wasn't paying for my Soyuz flight. Those were gonna be, that was a sponsored, very unique opportunity. I would have been the first woman. I, you know, that was new. Um, and I, I, again, it was a long flight. So I am not booked on any of these. I um, I'll watch for the price to come down. I, I would love to be selected as one of their deserving people that they fly themselves. We, I don't know, we could do a, some sort of campaign, but. Now George, um, George isn't, isn't, George Whitesides isn't at Virgin Galactic anymore, but you, you, you have some pull. Yeah, I think there's a lot of people with more pull than me. Um, <laughs> it, 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 both organizations, and I'm not really expecting any of that to happen. I also, as as you know from listening to the book, because I know you listened rather than read it, they my my purpose for being in this field wasn't to go myself. That was um, yeah. I really did want to open it for more people and more valuable purposes, and I'm. I'm just so glad that's working out. So if I, I, I still think I'll go to space in my life. I really do. I mean, I think the price will come down. I think there will be uh, opportunities. So stay tuned. And the price will come down in part because of what you've done. Right. We're part of it. So what, one more question on, 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 on commercial stuff. Uh, and it's a new program, the Commercial Leo Destinations Program. It's an effort whereby NASA is co-funding development of commercial space stations. Um, what do you think of the program? And then the, the hard question, when NASA down selects, should they, should they eventual winner be more than one? Should they fund at least two proposals? 
Yeah, there's a lot of good stuff in, in that question. I love the program. I think it's just a, a fabulous development stemming out of, of what we've been doing so far. Space Station has given us that, you know, toehold um, outward, but it's still very expensive to operate because like all human space flight before commercial crew, we didn't develop it or design in things that would make it more operationally sustainable. So having that happen is is wonderful. And let's all just hope Space Station can last to, to get us there. And that during that period of time, we can start to be developing some markets beyond tourism. I think tourism is for sure um, the, the big one right now. Uh, so that we can have more than one commercial LEO platform. To me, the reason you want to have more than one when you're doing something like a fixed cost program is not, not every company will succeed. And if NASA needs this capability for their own research, which they do, um, you're putting all that at risk otherwise. And I know we just have one now that's cost plus contract. And that's the reason we keep paying more every year, no matter what, plus, 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 um, to make sure it works, you know, backing of the federal government. So I would love to see two or more commercial LEO destinations that would signify that there's enough going on out there, enough customers that people besides NASA, people, organizations, other governments, I mean, you can imagine the market and I guess I'm pretty bullish on it myself. Uh, the next big economy is in, uh, for space is in LEO, so um but so here's one one last question because i just thought of this um the space station will definitely come to an end it just has to the technology's old it's going to start having a lot more problems more problems where astronaut time is going to be spent basically just maintaining it rather than actually doing what they should be doing with the space station which is uh r d um so and Senator, and thinking that Senator Nelson is you now Administrator Nelson, are you worried that we might have a gap, that we might not have a space station built through this Leo Destinations program in time to to to, to replace the space station? That there, like there was a gap between the shuttle and 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 SpaceX coming on board. Of course, this is a big concern, having nothing to do with Senator Nelson being administrator. Um, you know, things can happen on the space station technically that could cause a problem. We obviously are in just this hugely uh, difficult situation with working with the Russians who are enemies of the rest of the world almost, you know, here on terra firma. And unlike with space transportation, I mean, we had a backup. It was the Russians. Uh, there isn't a space station backup. Um, we're not going to go put our people on the Chinese space station and it's not really the for for that like ours permanently anyway um not only that but the space station is the market for our commercial transportation systems at this point so so this is a really important aspect to human spaceflight you know we didn't talk much about Artemis but uh, let's just 
say with what we have now, if we lost space station, we would lose it all. This was the situation when I came into NASA. And I know I got a little criticism for extending the space station by people who thought, well, it's, uh, as they were correct, you know, much more money than we intended, not only for development or operations, but it became uh, the way to bootstrap commercial crew. So we needed it. And the administration before ours was planning to deorbit it in the 2015 timeframe, which wouldn't have given you enough time to develop any, any sort of services, cargo or crew really. And that, that became something that we had to tackle. And so of course, there's a big risk. That's eight years that we're planning to keep it. And we've had a great record, just a great record with space station safety and politically, but that is really maybe um, our, our weakest link right now. Okay. Any closing thoughts? No, thank you. It's great to talk to you. All these interviews, I love having different people's views on the book. So it's much appreciated. Your listeners are going to be some of the most, uh, you know, well-educated and versed on the topic. So we're looking forward to the response. So the book is called Escaping Gravity, My Quest to Transform NASA and Launch a New Space Age. I highly recommend it. Well, that's a wrap on this episode. As always, your feedback is very much appreciated. You can send us a comment or a guest recommendation to podcast at spaceq.ca. You can also follow the podcast on Twitter at The Economy Space. And you can also support the podcast by writing a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to us. Until next time.